0: Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode we're going to take 2 Kings chapter 5 and we're going to talk about Naaman the Syrian. So Elisha's ministry expanded beyond the borders of Israel as recorded in this story of another miracle he performed. We'll just jump into the first verse talking about Naaman's problem. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Alright, so Naaman was a chief military commander of a persistent enemy to both Israel and Judah. As recently as the days of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, Syria had fought and won against Israel in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 35 and 36. His position and success made him a great and honorable man, and personally he was a mighty man of valor. And this same title was applied to Gideon, Judges chapter 6, verse 12, Jephthah, and Judges Chapter 11, verse 1, David in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 18, Jeroboam in 1 Kings, chapter 11, verse 28, and Elida in 2 Chronicles, chapter 17, verse 17. So it seems that this is the only specific Gentile mentioned as a mighty man of valor. And according to Jewish legends, the rabbis tell us that if he was, um, that he, Naaman, who shot the arrow wherewith Ahab was slain. But he was a leper, right? So Naaman had a lot going for him, but what he had against him was devastating. He was a leper. Which meant that he had a horrible, incurable disease that would slowly result in his death. No matter how good and successful everything was in Naaman's life, he was a leper. So here was a heavy tax upon his grandeur. He was afflicted with the disorder, the most loathsome and most humiliating that could possibly disgrace a human being. An ancient leprosy began as a small red spots on the skin and before too long, the spots get bigger and turn to white, with a sort of a shiny, scaly appearance. And pretty soon, the spots spread over the whole body and hair begins to fall out, first from the head and then from the eyebrows. And as things get worse, fingernails and toenails become loose. They start to rot and eventually fall off. Then the joints of the fingers and toes begin to rot and fall off piece by piece. The gums begin to shrink and they can't hold the teeth anymore. So each of them is lost, and leprosy keeps eating away at your face until literally the nose, palate, and Even the eyes rot and the victim wastes away until death. So, pretty nasty stuff. Right. So, Naaman, this commander of the army of the king of Aram, Ben Hadad the Second, from 860 to 841 B.C., he was a successful and a courageous warrior, highly regarded because of the victories God had given the Arameans under his leadership. Right. But he had this leprosy, and this wasn't um, leprosy as it is known today. This dreaded disease degenerated its victims, right, until it was fatal, and no cure for it was known during these days. In Israel, lepers were normally isolated from non-lepers, and this was not always the custom in other nations, including Aram. So Naaman was able to carry on his duties as long as the disease permitted him to. All right, verses 2 through 3, the testimony from the servant girl. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So this girl was an unwilling missionary, taken captive from Israel, and now she's in Syria. Yet God allowed the tragedy of her captivity to accomplish a greater good here, and we're going to see that play out. The young girl illustrates the mysterious ways that God works. She was probably raised in a godly home, yet taken from her family at a young age. And it was an irreplaceable loss for her parents, and one they no doubt grieved over every day, yet she was greatly used in a very simple way. This young girl was an outstanding example of a faithful witness in her current circumstance. Right, She cared enough to speak up and she had faith enough to believe that Elisha would heal him of his leprosy. And see the benefits of a religious education. Had not this little maid been brought up in the knowledge of the true God, she had not been the instrument of so great a salvation that we're going to see play out. Right. So in the course of their occasional battles with Israel, Naaman's forces had captured some Israelites whom they made slaves. And one of these was a young girl named Naaman who had given to his wife as a servant. And evidently, Naaman and his wife were kind to this girl because she sought Naaman's welfare. And so she told her mistress, who told her husband, that a prophet living in Samaria could cure the leprosy. And this was Elisha she speaks of. He lived in a house in the capital city. And you can note chapter 6, verse 24 and 32. Probably the girl had heard of Elisha before she was carried off as a slave. And apparently she assumed that he could cleanse leprosy in view of his supernatural power. No leper in Israel, though, was healed in Elisha's day in Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Verse twenty-seven. Later, the slave's uh, the slave girl's faith in the Lord might have been an indirect rebuke to Israel's king Jehoram, who had no faith in God. All right, let's take verses 4 through 7. And Naaman comes to the king of Israel looking for healing. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus, and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel, then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Let's look at this. So, considering the record of wars between Israel and Syria described in the previous chapters, it would seem strange that the king of Syria would send a letter of recommendation with his general Naaman, and it seems that 2 Kings is not necessarily arranged chronologically, so this probably occurred during the time of lower tension between Israel and Syria. So, Dilday estimated that by the values of his own day, Naaman took more than 1.2 million with him to Israel, and all this together shows how desperate Naaman's condition was, and how bad Sadly, the king of Syria wanted to help him. So, when the king of Israel, Jehoram, this is the northern kingdom, read the letter, he was understandably upset. And first, it was obviously out of his power to heal Naaman's leprosy. Second, he had no relationship with the prophet of God, who did have the power to heal. He thought the king of Syria saw a quarrel. Right? He thought he was picking a fight, and the king of Syria assumed that the king of Israel was on a much better relationship with Elisha than he really was. Um, and he didn't really care for him because he kept giving him bad news so it is really uh, it's easy for others to assume that we have a better relationship with God than we really do so, this Aramean king was anxious for his valuable commander to be cleansed, not only because he was a trusted friend, because, uh, but because this, this, this uh, disease would eventually rob the king of his top military commander. So, Naaman set out to visit King Jehiram, who he assumed would protect, uh, he would order the prophet to cure him. And with him, the commander took gifts of 10 talents, or 750 pounds of silver, 600 shekels, or 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing, all prized gifts in the Near East during this time. So, Jehoram was dismayed when he read the letter from Ben-Hadad II. Tearing one's robes indicated great anxiety and distress, and you will note chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 6, verse 30, and chapter 11, verse 14. It's a very Jewish uh, thing to do. tearing one's robes and putting on sackcloth and ashes and so forth. Uh, Israel and Aram had been at peace but it appeared that Jehoram um, it appeared to Jehoram that Ben-Hadad was trying to pick a fight again as he had done with Jehoram's father Ahab back in First Kings 20, verses 1-3. through And Jehoram did not realize that Naaman did not expect him to cure the leprosy. Elisha did not even enter Jehoram's mind. The Israelite king had no use for that prophet who constantly opposed him, right? He didn't like him because he always gave him bad news uh, because he wasn't walking in God's ways. So Jehoram wanted as little contact with him as possible. Alright, verses 8 and 9, Naaman comes to Elisha's house. So it was when Elisha, the man of God heard that the King of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, "Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. The naaman went to his uh, went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So Elisha gave a gentle rebuke to the king of Israel, this northern king. Um, and this is a crisis to you because you have no relationship with God who can heal lepers, right? but in a but it is a needless crisis because you could, have a relationship with this god. Uh, So Naaman would never know that there was a prophet in Israel by hanging around the royal palace. The true prophet in Israel wasn't welcome at the palace. So when Elisha learned of Jehoram's anxiety over Ben-Hadad's letter, he sent the king a message not to worry. If Jehoram would send Naaman to him, the prophet was going to cure him. And Naaman would learn, even if Jehoram had not, that there was a true prophet in Israel. All right. verses 10 through 12, Naaman's anger at Elisha's instructions. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over this place, and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage." So Naaman took the trouble to come to the home of Elisha, but Elisha refused to give him a personal audience. He simply sent a messenger. And this was humbling to Naaman, who was accustomed to being honored. And there's a reason for this. And he told him to wash in the Jordan seven times. And there were, these were simple, uncomplicated instructions. Yet as Naaman's reaction demonstrates, these were humbling instructions. And apparently the Jordan, as compared to the other rivers, was uh, not as clean enough for him. So Naaman had it all figured out. In his great need, he anticipated a way God would work, and he was offended when God didn't work the way he expected. And because his expectation of how God should work was crushed, Naaman wanted nothing to do with Elisha, right? Does that sound familiar to you? If the answer was in washing in a river, Naaman knew that there were better rivers in his own land. Note the types and the message behind the story, right? So, not at all awed by the great general. Elisha didn't even go out to meet him. Instead, he sent this messenger to convey a simple prescription for his issue. And Naaman was told to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and he would be free of his disease. The cure lay not in the water of the Jordan, all right? Pay attention to this. But in obedient faith in God's promise through his prophet, Right. Our obedient faith comes to Jesus Christ on the cross, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-4. <clears throat> so, Naaman turned from Elisha's house angry for two reasons. One, his pride had been offended by Elisha's offhanded treatment of him, and he had expected a cleansing ceremony in keeping with his own dignity. Right, He had this high status, and his pride was like, I'm better than this, right? We have to break ourselves of pride. And two, he resented having been told to wash in a muddy river that he considered inferior to the Abana and Parpar rivers of his own hometown. The waters of the Jordan, he thought, could not possibly do him any good. All right, verse 13, the good advice of Naaman's servants. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So thank God for faithful subordinates who will speak to their superiors in such a way. Naaman was obviously very angry, yet they were bold enough to give him the good advice he needed to hear. So the servants of Naaman used a brilliantly logical approach. If Elijah had asked Naaman to sacrifice a hundred or a thousand animals to the God of Israel, Naaman would have done it immediately. Yet because his request was easy to do and very humbling, Naaman first refused. Interesting. So the commander's servants had not been personally put down as their master had and could view the situation more objectively. Approaching him tenderly, they appealed to him as a father to be reasonable. And they pointed out that it was not as though Elijah had requested something difficult, right? Some great thing. So what harm would there be in giving this remedy a try? Exactly, right? You ever ask someone to just have faith in the cross and they're like, no, but I have to do something. I have to work for it. I have to do something great and then when you tap into something as simple as faith it is that simple true faith is that christ died, buried, and raised on the third day for your sins. You cash in on that faith, and you rest easy in it. But it's so easy that it blows people's minds. They just can't wrap their hands around it. Alright, verse 14, Naaman is healed. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman did exactly what Elisha told him to do. Therefore, we can say that each dunk in the Jordan was a step of faith, trusting in the word of God through his prophet. And why On the ancient Hebrew word translated dipped, Naaman plunged in the river Jordan. This signified total obedience to the divine word. And Spurgeon saw Naaman attacked by two enemies the proud self, who internally demanded that Elisha come out and see him, and evil questioning, who questioned why he should wash in the Jordan when he had better rivers back in his homeland. Naaman overcame these two enemies and did what God told him to do. Very simple. And Naaman's response of faith was generously rewarded, and it cost him nothing, right? And just like faith in the cross, costs us absolutely nothing, and that blows people's minds. So God answered his faith with complete and miraculous healing. And the simple method of this miracle performed without the prophet there uh, did give God the credit. It was obvious that the healing came from God rather than some sort of magical incantation that Naaman was anticipating. So undoubtedly, feeling rather ashamed, Naaman humbled himself. He obeyed the word of the Lord. As he obeyed in faith, he was cleansed. God did even more for him and restored his flesh to its soft boyhood texture. The fact that in Elisha's day an Aramean leper was healed, whereas no Israelite leper was, you'll note Luke chapter 4 verse 27, points up Israel's apostasy. And you'll give a a personal note here, the late Walter Martin, preaching on the foolishness of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 through 25 is used in this episode in his string of examples of how God seems to go out of his way to use foolishness to accomplish his purposes the ultimate foolishness is of course the cross first Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 the foolishness of God is greater than you know the wise wisdom of men all right verses 15 and 16 Na- Naaman's gonna offer, reward Elisha, but the prophet's going to refuse here. And he returned to the man of God, he and all of his aides, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So this was a uh, fine display of gratitude. Naaman was like the one leper out of the ten that Jesus healed who came back to thank Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 12 through 19. He was also a foreigner, like the one thankful leper of Luke chapter 17. And before Naaman expected the prophet to come to him Now he returned to the man of God and stood before him And it's often the case that those who have least to value themselves on uh, Those who have least to value themselves on are proud and haughty Whereas the most excellent of the earth are the most humble Knowing that they have nothing but what they have received Right? Naaman the leper was more proud and dictatorial than he was when claimed of his leprosy and it wasn't just the healing that persuaded naaman of this it was the healing connected with the word of the prophet together this was convincing evidence to naaman that god uh, the god elisha represented was the true god in all the earth and we can say that naaman only meant well by this gesture Um, He felt it was appropriate to support the ministry of this man of God, whom the Lord had used so greatly to bring healing. However, Elisha steadfastly insisted that he would receive nothing from Naaman. So Naaman returned from the Jordan to Elisha's house in Samaria, about 25 miles, with a heart full of gratitude and hands full of gifts. Rather than expecting Elisha to come to him, he willingly stood before the prophet and testified to his belief that Israel's God is the only true God. Unfortunately, many in Israel, including her king, had not come to the same realization. And this is the highest purpose of Naaman's healing from God's point of view. And Elisha agreed that the Lord whom he serves lives. But the prophet refused to accept any reward for his ministry. Naaman's urging did not budge Elisha. The man of God had not performed his miracle for reward, but at the word of the Lord, and he did not want anyone to think otherwise. The false prophets could easily, easily be bought, but not Elisha, right? There was no price for it. All right, so verse 17 through 19, you're going to get Naaman's new faith. So Naaman said, Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer. Longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace, so he departed from him a short distance. So, like many new believers, Naaman was superstitious in his faith. And he held a common opinion of the ancient world that particular deities had power over particular places. And he thought that if he took a piece of Israel back with him to Syria, he could better worship the God of Israel. So the transporting of holy soil was a widespread custom. And Naaman's faith was uh, yet untaught. And with this personal need to follow publicly the state cults, Elisha might have felt that available Israelite soil may have afforded Naaman with some tangible reminder of his cleansing and a new relationship to God. And as an official in the government of Syria, Naaman was expected to participate in the worship of the Syrian gods. So he asked Elisha for allowance to, to direct his heart to God, even when he was in the temple of Remon. So the Hebrew word, lean on the hand, does not imply physical support, but that he was the king's right-hand man. And you'll note 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 2 and verse 17. It tells him, go in peace. By generally approving, but not specifically saying yes or no, it seems that Elisha left the manor up to... Um, he left the matter up to Naaman and God. It was between them. Perhaps he trusted that the Lord would personally convict Naaman of this and give him the integrity and strength to avoid idolatry altogether. So some commentators, Clark and Trapp among them, believe that Naaman asked forgiveness for his previous idolatry in the Temple of Ramon uh, instead of asking permission for future occasions. And apparently the Hebrew will allow for this translation, though it is not the most natural way to understand the text. Nevertheless, we can certainly agree with Trap application. Let none, by Naaman's example, plead an upright soul in a prostrate body. So since Elisha would not take anything, Naaman asked him to give as much earth as he could to carry back to Damascus on two mules. He intended to use this in making an altar to the Lord. Many uh, polytheists believe that no god could be worshipped except in its own land, or an altar built with the dirt of that land. So Naaman proposed to worship only God himself, right, the Lord. But superstition shaped his thinking here. In the course of his official duties, however, he would have to give token respect to the god of his master, the king. The god of Damascus was Hadad Ramon, a god of rain and thunder, here shortened to Ramon. And it was Naaman's duty to participate in this official worship with the king, and probably the other officials of state. And the command was not prepared to risk his life as Daniel's three friends would in Daniel chapter three verse twelve by refusing to bow before an idol. But one must remember that Naaman was not an Israelite with the advantage of knowledge of the revealed word of God. Perhaps his responsibility therefore was not as great as an Israelite's would have been. Right? With much is given, much as required. We we are held to even a much higher standard because we've been given the whole picture so Elisha's departing benediction right go in peace probably was a blessing on the journey ahead of Naaman rather than on the compromising behavior of the the general had outlined in verses 17 and 18 which the prophet neither approved nor disapproved verbally verse 20 through 24 Gehazi follows after Naaman but Gehazi the servant of Elisha the man of God said look my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought but as the Lord lives I will run after him and take something from him so Gehazi Pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well, my master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents, and he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments, and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel he took them in from their hand and stored them away in the house then he let them men go and they departed so as Gehazi heard Naaman and Elisha speak he was shocked that his master refused to take anything from such a wealthy influential and grateful man so he figured that someone should benefit from such an opportunity so he took the initiative to run after Naaman and take something from him Right, there's a learning point here. Gehazi thought that Elisha deserved a reward, right? My master has spared Naaman. And he also became exactly what Elisha avoided becoming a taker, right? To take something from him. So he said, Please take two talents. Gehazi probably thought that God was blessing his venture. After all, he asked for a talent of silver, and Naaman was happy to give him two talents. The fact that he handed him two um Handed them to two of his servants shows that this was a lot of silver. It required two servants to carry these two talents, for according to the computation above, each talent was about 120 pounds of weight. Right, that's a lot to carry, and uh, he stored them away in the house. So he deliberately hid them from Elisha. Right, so Gehazi knew that he did wrong here. <clears throat> So Gehazi came greedy of what Naaman had offered to give Elisha. Evidently, he justified his greed by reasoning that since Naaman was an Aramean, a natural enemy of Israel, he should at least be taken advantage of. So Gehazi pursued Naaman to get something from him. Gehazi was able to overtake this large, slow-moving caravan on foot. Naaman got down from his chariot in chapter 4, verse 26 and asked if everything was all right. And Gehazi said everything was all right, but then he lied to the commander. He said his uh, master had received unexpected guests, two prophets, and wanted to give them some silver and change of clothing each. So Gehazi put this lie in Elisha's mouth and made the request sound very unselfish. And so Naaman was very happy to oblige anyway, so he urged Gehazi to accept twice as much silver as well as the clothing, and even provided two servants to carry these gifts back to Elisha. And Gehazi followed the servants When they arrived at the hill on which Samaria was built, he took the gifts from them and put them in his house. All right, so let's look at verse 25 through 27. Gehazi's reward. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, "Where did you go, Gehazi?" And he said, "Your servant did not go anywhere." Then he said to him, "Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leper." Name and shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence as white as snow. So Elisha knew, and we don't know if this was supernatural knowledge or simply gained from observation and knowing Gehazi's character. One way or another, Elisha knew, and all of Gehazi's attempts to cover his sin failed. And it seems that Elisha had no absolute law against receiving support from those who were touched by his ministry, yet it is spiritually clear to Elisha, and should have been clear to Gehazi, that it was not appropriate at this time and circumstance. So the money, clothing, olive groves, vineyard, sheep and oxen, male and female servants. Obviously, Gehazi did not bring all these things home with him from Naaman, yet he wanted all these things, and Elisha exposed his greedy heart. And the deepest wrong in the action of Gehazi was that it involved the Divine witness which had been born to the Syrian Naaman by the action of the little serving maid in his house and the prophet Elisha. Their action had been wholly disinterested and for the glory of God. And we get a severe judgment, right? Uh, Leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. This is a severe judgment, but as the man in ministry, Gehazi was under a stricter judgment here. And when he allowed himself to covet what Naaman had, he thought uh, only in terms of the money Naaman possessed. God allowed him to keep the riches, but also gave him the other thing Naaman had, severe leprosy. So Gehazi is not the last who got money in an unlawful way and has got God's curse along with it and we see here a pagan who by act of faith is cured of leprosy and an Israelite who by an act of dishonor is cursed with it So, shortly thereafter, Gehazi returned to Elisha. He didn't realize that God had revealed his whereabouts to his master. So, to cover one lie, he told another, and Elisha then explained that he was aware of everything Gehazi had done. Elisha added that true servants of the Lord should not take personal rewards from people, especially influential non-Israelites. Take that as a model for us today, in return for blessings that God, not his servant, had given them. False prophets were selfishly lining their own pockets and bringing contempt on a prophetic office true prophets should avoid conduct that might be misunderstood as self-seeking. So Naaman's leprosy had been removed from him for his trust and obedience to God. Now, ironically, leprosy would cling to Gehazi for his lack of trust in and obedience to God. The servant had brought dishonor to God's name. If you buy these, you also buy Naaman's leprosy. So Naaman had become an Israelite, but Gehazi became a pagan through sin. And you'll note Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 34. So Naaman Haman's conversion was to show the Israelites how easy the Lord could turn the hearts of their adversaries and thereby make them worshipers of God, fellow believers with the Jews themselves. A bad case of leprosy turned one's skin and hair white as snow. Gehazi's judgment was serious because his sin had far-reaching consequences, and this story was probably told all over Aram and Israel. As a servant of God, Gehazi had more privilege than most people, and therefore more responsibility. Than most people. The story contains many lessons. Naaman's healing was another great proof of the Lord's power to restore health power, which only uh, Baal supposedly possessed, right? But the Lord had it. Baal was just a false idol. And this incident also helped uh, spread the fame of God to another part of the ancient world. The contrasting behaviors of Elisha and Gehazi also model positive and negative attitudes and actions for God's servants of all ages. This is one of the several examples that Jesus himself referred to in his sermon at Nazareth. And you'll note Luke chapter 4 verse 27, right? Why did they then try to throw Jesus off a cliff in response, right? Pay attention to that. And that ties up chapter five. Next time in chapter six, we're going to talk about Elisha and the Syrians. Thank you for joining me.